This is Neil Erwitz, Director of External Relations for the Center for a New American Security. I'm here today with uh, Mira Rapp-Hooper, a senior fellow in our Asia-Pacific Security Program, and Harry Kresa, a research associate in that same program. Uh, in light of Secretary of State's uh, Rex Tillerson's recent trip to uh, the Pacific Rim, there's obviously quite a bit to discuss, um, especially because uh, there's been quite a bit of criticism criticism of the trip. Mira, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, about the trip when what's caused that criticism? Sure, Neil. It was certainly an eventful one. Uh, Secretary Tillerson was under the microscope before he left on his trip, uh, of course, because of his decision not to allow press to accompany him on his plane. Uh, but when he got to South Korea uh, last week, Secretary Tillerson uh, made some statements about uh, the U.S. approach to North Korea, uh, used very strong terminology that suggested the Trump administration was taking a firmer stand uh, on North Korea and his request uh, to develop an ICBM and build out its nuclear arsenal. Um, but actually worth noting that his statements, while very strong uh, in their tone and verbiage, were actually quite consistent with prior administration's North Korea policy. Uh, but the, the real sort of twist uh, in the trip came when Secretary Tillerson uh, arrived in China. Uh, where one would have expected the conversation uh, between him and his counterparts in Beijing to be rather difficult uh, in no small part because the North Korea issue is so pressing. Uh, and this administration, as many others, believe that they have to put pressure on China to use China's leverage on North Korea if they are going to be able to uh, have any chance of, of arresting North Korea's burgeoning capabilities. Uh, but when he uh, arrived in Beijing, Secretary Tillerson uh, made some very odd remarks, uh, odd in the sense that they appeared to parrot uh, the verbiage that President Xi has been using and trying to encourage his U.S. counterparts to use to describe the U.S.-China bilateral relationship. And President Xi has been using this verbiage since uh, approximately 2012. Uh, the the descriptors that uh, President Xi often uses and encourage, uh, encourages others to use include references to things like win-win uh, cooperation, uh, mutual respect of interests, uh, non-interference for interests. And while all of these terms may sound very uh, innocuous and anodyne, uh, to most people, the reason that they really matter and the reason why it was rather alarming that Secretary Tillerson used this verbiage uh, is because it suggests that the United States is effectively, effectively accepting a request by China not to interfere in its interests in the Pacific. That is, not to interfere in issues like Taiwan or possibly even the South China Sea, which it considers to be its, quote, core interest. Uh, and it seems that Secretary Tillerson sort of adopted this way of describing the U.S.-China relationship almost verbatim uh, from a transcript that President Xi had used when uh, speaking to President Obama several years ago. So the trip, which started as one might have expected, that is to say with a tough line on North Korea and clearly with North Korea as the reason for Secretary Tillerson being in the region, ended with Asia experts really scratching their heads as to how Secretary Tillerson uh, decided to use this 
language to describe the U.S.-China relationship because it appears, frankly, to uh, admit any number of defeats in the bilateral relationship with China going forward. Harry, anything you want to add there? I would reiterate that uh, getting this U.S.-China relationship right is going to be critical because tackling the North Korean nuclear issue is going to necessarily include China. Uh, China is the closest thing that North Korea has to uh, something of an ally, and it's certainly its principal trading partner. But just how willing or able China is to help tackle the North Korean nuclear issue is becoming some matter of debate. The only thing that China wants less than a destabilizing nuclear-armed North Korea is a collapsed North Korea, uh, which would mean an immediate threat of a refugee crisis, but also long-term concerns over a unified Korea under the South government, which would represent essentially a U.S. treaty ally on their border. Worse, many believe that China's ability to influence North Korea at all may be declining. Kim Jong-un has been systematically removing or executing officials seen as being close to China, and as a result, China is being quickly left with only blunt tools of influence, things like shipments of food and fuel. And messing with these shipments could easily threaten the stability of the entire regime. So by leaving China only the most damaging avenues of influence, Kim Jong-un has made it less likely that they will try to meaningfully use them. So this is already an uphill climb for American diplomacy, and I worry that this trip didn't make it much easier. So that that's a good segue. How do we dig out then if uh, if the trip uh, was worthy of criticism? Well, it's an important question and one that needs to be answered almost immediately because President Xi will be traveling to the United States to meet with President Trump in the first week of April. They'll be meeting at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, and what I would say is one of the biggest takeaways from, from this trip that, frankly, is, is really surprising uh, to me and I think to a number of other Asia watchers is how wide the spectrum of possibility remains when it comes to the question of how the Trump administration wants to define its Asia policy and in particular its policy for engaging with China. On one end of the spectrum, you have this performance that we just saw from Secretary Tillerson this weekend, which essentially appeared to uh, you know, make a lot of concessions, at least in verbiage, uh, to China and to China's way of conducting that bilateral relationship. Uh, and implicitly, if followed through, would make concessions as far as the United States position in the region uh, and the things that it continues to intend to and be able to defend. But on the far other side of the ledger, we have folks in the administration uh, who are very clearly interested in getting tough on China, China in a rather hawkish way. Certainly, uh, Secretary, uh, excuse me, certainly President Trump's economic advisors who want to take a hard line with China uh, for reasons of so-called economic nationalism. Uh, advisors like Steve Bannon, who not only hold an economic nationalist lens on China, uh, but have the view that China is an expanding uh, country and culture that needs to be contained. Uh, so this is really a very wide spectrum where on the one hand you see Tillerson making concessions that if followed through on 
would essentially cede China a sphere of influence in the Pacific, and on the other hand, a group of advisors who are ready to escalate big time. Uh, and only two weeks left uh, in which uh, this administration can try to come up with a coherent China policy. So I would suggest uh, that certainly folks who are well-versed in strategy and who have a firm understanding of the importance of the U.S.-China relationship, but also what it means for broader order uh, and geopolitics in the 21st century really need to try to exert whatever influence they have at this moment. That most notably is Secretary Mattis uh, and, of course, uh, of course, our uh, new National Security Advisor, McMaster, uh, both of whom understand China's role both in the region and in the world. Uh, and I don't think would want to see Trump administration China policy spin off in either direction that could be portended by uh, the, the evidence that we've seen so far. Harry, last word. I think Mira said it. It's uh, this is a, a an issue that needs to be cleaned up quickly. Terrific. Well, uh, if nothing else, we'll have a lot to talk about in two weeks. Um, so look forward to talking to both of you soon. Thanks, Neil. Thank Thanks you, Neil. a lot, guys.